Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development. This is the first podcast promoted by the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia, which is a not-for-profit organisation that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and to the wider community. We are concerned in these podcasts to go a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child and family life. We're also trying to get away from a focus that's purely behavioural and strategy and quick fix based to look at what lies beneath, to look at greater complexity and why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www acfd.com.au After this first podcast, I'm going to be interviewing a number of experts in the field of infancy, infant-parent relationships, early childhood, child psychotherapy, adolescence, and many other important topics. Today's topic is one that I'm going to address on my own, and it's called Are Children People? and it's based on a public talk that I gave some years ago. It has a very provocative title, and I hope you enjoy the content. Are Children People? I'd like to draw our attention to everyday parenting and to some of the struggles that we all have as parents when we may see children as less than themselves and sometimes have difficulty in remembering or recognizing that they are indeed people. What I'm referring to is that in our increasingly consumer-driven and mechanistic society, we run the risk of losing touch with ourselves and losing touch with our children. Central to this experience of losing touch is that we lose a sense of meaning, that is, a sense of ourselves as parents, what it means to us to be parents, what it has meant to us to be children. How can we feel about our own children? How How can we be in touch with a child part of ourselves? And what I'd like to show in this talk is that not only are children people, but that the relationship we have with our children and they with us, and the meaning that we attribute to that relationship, is a vital part of the development of mental health and rewarding parenting. In the many years that I've worked with children and parents, I've become increasingly concerned that the capacity to attribute meaning, particularly to children's behaviour and to their play, and therefore to be able to understand children, has become increasingly eroded. In our consumer society, we value what the child produces, and indeed what the family unit produces. It's seen as a commodity which has a particular value, but like all other commodities, it can be short-lived and disposed of if it's found not to be useful. We pride ourselves on our advances in technology, that we believe that as our technological understanding advances, that we can deal with children and with human growth, development and behaviour in a similarly instrumental mechanistic way. Rather than seeing the development of behaviour as a dynamic process, which is essentially related to the establishment of relationships with parents and significant others, we try to seek a parallel in the control that we can exert over machines with the control we can exert both over ourselves and over our children. Within an instrumental mechanistic society, the child is seen as a product, 
And anything that interferes with a perfect child or perfect behavior or things running smoothly needs to be attended to, fixed or eliminated. Regrettably, I believe that we as professionals may collude with this approach because it helps us feel more in control. Sometimes it's easier for us to be able to separate out one single aspect of a problem and focus on that rather than to encompass the complexity of what a child or parent's behaviour may mean in a particular context. This leads me to my next point, which is that in order to understand the meaning of children's behaviour, we need to give ourselves sufficient time. However, time itself has become a commodity, and as we all know, time equals money. There may be no time to assist a toddler to support them through their toilet training, if they are not trained by a certain time, then this becomes a problem and needs to be managed. The problem particularly for young children of not sleeping is another example of this dilemma, and I will describe this in more detail later on. What I want to emphasize is how children and parents are often not offered an appropriate time frame in which to operate and develop together and to get to know each other in a way which is sympathetic to their needs and most importantly, can allow for trial and error. Rather, we emphasize a time frame which is imposed from outside and which often has to do with fitting into an instrumental world. Let us pause for a moment to consider the language we use when describing the relationship between children and parents. We talk of giving parents strategies so that they may cope with and change the behavior of their child. I had understood that a strategy was something employed in battle, in the army. Children require understanding. Almost invariably, the difficulties that children encounter are expressed in terms of behavioral problems or a problem of disobedience or discipline or confrontation between children and parents. This suggests that the child is seen as the adversary of the parent or of the adult world and needs to be shown his or her place. The child care manuals are full of terms such as managing, fixing, even taming children. We find it difficult to recognize that children can be taken seriously. Families, for instance, may be going through all kinds of transitions and turmoils, for example, when divorce is taking place or where there are major upsets in the family, and yet often adults don't try to explain what is going on to a young child on the assumption that they really don't know what's going on. They're too young. You know, this notion of, that someone suggested about growing, you know, when do you grow up? However, if we all think back to our childhoods, I'm sure we can all vividly recall incidents where our parents assumed we didn't know what was going on, and yet we were fully aware of what was happening and felt very distressed and confused. The problem about not seeing children as people involves a total loss of meaning about how we can understand children's behavior and indeed our own behavior as parents we then end up with a disposal model of behavior in which we want to manage, control, get rid of, sometimes through medication, any kind of behavior in children that is seen as worrying and annoying. I'd like to emphasize that far from losing a sense of meaning about children's behavior, parents can actually find a way of observing and understanding children's behavior which can help them make sense of what their child does and lead to the development of a rewarding relationship for both. First of all, we have to recognize that development starts from the word go, and that the baby who comes into the world is not just a blank slate on which things are written by mother, father, and significant others. 
Rather, the baby is a person. In fact, in the best possible circumstances, the emotional life of the infant is formed even before it's born in the play and fantasy that both parenting partners have about the child that is to come. When both partners perhaps have a nickname for the baby who's developing in the mother's tummy, playfully wondering what it will be like, whether it will be a boy or a girl, this already establishes a welcoming committee for the baby and ensures that he or she will come into a warm, responsive relationship with their parents. It lays the foundations for positive mental health. In the last 20 years, there's been a considerable amount of interest in research in the area of infancy from birth and even before. Daniel Stern, a well-known researcher in the field, has written a book called The First Relationship. In it, he makes the following point about the personality of the baby. He says, The infant comes into the world bringing formidable capacities to establish human relatedness. Immediately, he is a partner in shaping his first and foremost relationships. Daniel Stern's use of the word partner is very important here because so often we can see parenting as something that is done to children, and when things go bad, parents see children as being distant from them or not wanting to listen. What I'd like to emphasize is that being a good enough parent is not an automatic process. It's not something that happens just through the process of biologically having the child. Rather, parenting is something that develops over time through a partnership, not just with our adult partners, but in a partnership with our children. What this means is that we have to allow ourselves to learn from our babies and learn from our children because they are really in the best position to be able to let us know what is happening for them. But this, of course, means that we have to then recognize children as real people. If we can recognize our child as having a real personality, being a real person, we can allow the child to change us and transform us, which is what a good parenting relationship is all about. It seems to me very sad, for example, when parents, perhaps at the birth of their first child, rush to the parenting manuals or turn to the experts and in the process turn away from what the baby is actually trying to tell them. One of the most common examples of this process is the advice parents are given to establish a routine, as though this is the be-all and end-all of being with the baby. When I had my first child, I was bowled over by the realization that babies already have a most complex built-in sleep and feeding rhythm upon which we cannot improve. Sometimes I wonder whether the beginnings of an adversarial style of parenting that parents find themselves trapped in doesn't begin at this early stage when they feel they need to impose a routine from outside. If we get into a battle for control with our children, we miss out on the fun of recognizing what social people they can be, even as babies. For example, as part of the parent advice line that I ran, I had a call from an anxious young mother who said her four-month-old baby wouldn't sleep. She had been strongly advised by her own mother that after every feed, the baby needed to be firmly tucked up and put to sleep. However, her baby did not want to go to sleep and protested. However, rather than seeing this as a problem, I suggested that the baby so enjoyed her mother's company that at the end of the feed, she wasn't ready for sleep but wanted to be sociable and have a conversation with her mother. This young mother was surprised to hear that her baby had a personality and a social need, which also links with the beginnings of the capacity to play. If we as parents, and indeed as professionals, want to learn from the baby and learn from the child and learn from our own experiences, 
One of the complicating factors is that we may not always have the right answers. But do we always need to know exactly what is happening? Does there have to be a right and a wrong answer? How can this be possible when all babies are different and children are different and parents have different parenting styles? The problem may be that it becomes difficult to tolerate our own uncertainty and we look for one generalized answer that will take care of all situations. But if we do get it wrong, does it matter? Because what is so wonderful about parenting is that there is almost always a second chance and babies, children, even adolescents are very forgiving and want to have a partnership with their parents. They also want things to work out. It is when we don't always have the answers that play can help both our children and ourselves to find some reasonable solutions. It is interesting that in everyday language we use the phrase playing with ideas. This suggests that the truly creative process requires that we allow ourselves a bit of time to step back from the urgency of solving the problem to be able to look at different possibilities and sometimes to take a humorous view and to use our imagination and creativity. Play, both for children and for parents, operates as a bridge between the demands of the inner world and the outer world. It is a link between the realities of what we face every day and the inside world of our dreams, our fantasies, our hopes, our fears. Play is an important way of helping us to deal with uncertainty and also helps us to deal with frightening and overwhelming events. When we as parents are able to play with our children, this inevitably puts us in touch with the child part of ourselves. We are reminded of what it was like when we were three or five or eight or fifteen. Our capacity to stay with and not deny these feelings, but remember them and use them constructively, helps with the important task of communicating with our children. Another way of putting this is to say there is always a child within us of which we should not be ashamed, but can use constructively. For babies and young children, play is a vital part of development. It is also hard work because it is closely involved with the whole area of learning, exploration and curiosity. For example, babies, while engaged in apparently desultory activities such as shaking a rattle or throwing an object down from a high chair over and over again, waiting for it to be picked up, are actually laying the foundations for crucial cognitive development, which always involves a relationship with a significant person in their lives. We can thus see how cognitive development and emotional development go hand in hand and how play provides an important bridge for this process. If we take the time to watch young children at play, we find it's often characterized by enormous intensity and sometimes a quite rigid attention to detail. For example, if a family has been on a holiday or on a journey, the young child may be seen acting out the journey over and over again carrying the suitcases around the house, packing all sorts of clothes into them, struggling to get the doll children in line and getting cross if they don't obey. Here we see play not only as a way of repeating an experience, but also as a way of integrating and trying to make sense of it. In war-torn areas of the world, professionals often describe the repetitive play of young children who act out shootings and kidnappings. This suggests to us not that the children are bloodthirsty, but rather that play has an important function of helping them to integrate and make sense of chaotic events. Play is always healthy, productive and creative if we can allow it the time and space in which to take place. 
If we see play and the child's fantasy as irrelevant, then we are, in a sense, seeing the child's personality as irrelevant. For young children, when play is abruptly interrupted, the effects can be destructive. A research project in London, which looked at the workings of a daycare centre for children, came up with some interesting observations. They discovered that without meaning to, that the staff of the daycare centre were more concerned with establishing their own routines than with the individual needs of the children. As a result, activities that the children were engaged in would become interrupted in an arbitrary way. This resulted in some children becoming either more aggressive or more withdrawn. We can see a parallel here with the emphasis on routine for the parents of a new baby, which I mentioned earlier, where perhaps our uncertainty and anxiety tends to push us into sticking to a routine at all costs in order to be able to feel more in control of our anxiety. One of the fundamental aspects of development for all of us is dealing with change and separation. One way that babies and young children try to deal with the changes that take place for them, particularly with people coming and going, with travelling, with separations, is to become attached to a little blanket or a soft toy or an article of clothing which reminds them of their parents. It may be something that they carry around with them wherever they go. Mostly children hate it when we try and put these articles into the wash when they become grubby. However, these are not just little rags or little grubby items, but very important objects for the baby and young child, which help them to manage the space between themselves and their parents, between coming and going. It also helps them to manage their own independence. It's much easier for a toddler to go into the next room holding onto a beloved blanket if he knows that the blanket still feels like part of mummy. A well-known paediatrician and child therapist, Donald Winnicott, has used the term transitional object for these blankets or soft toys, by which he means that transition itself is an important process for all of us throughout life as we move from one phase to another. We may, as adults, have versions of the little blanket or soft toys. They may be articles of clothing or particular objects we're attached to, these help us to manage the losses and changes that are an inevitable part of growing up. This links in with what I was saying earlier about the child who continues to exist in the parent. Thus, childhood is not something we need to get over in order to move into a more so-called rational state, something called adulthood. Rather, the child part of ourselves represents important data and information about our experience, which in turn provides a vital communicating link with our own children. If we recognize children as people, then we allow ourselves to attribute a meaning to all our experiences, both positive and negative. This in turn means that we have to cope with and help our children cope with two key areas. These, I think, are sadness or depression and anxiety. Generally, we believe that these are emotions we should keep at bay as far as possible, rather than that they should be accepted and worked with as part of life. However, the capacity to understand and tolerate sadness or depression, as well as anxiety, plays an important part in the beginnings of internal development for the infant, the young child, and parents. Within the family, growth and change necessarily and inevitably involve stress and a level of anxiety, and that's essential as a spur towards action. Babies, young children, older children and adults also need a sad or reflective time to mull things over and make sense of things. 
in development, we always have to give up something from the phase before in order to move on to the next phase. If we as parents are able to help children to cope with sadness and depression and anxiety in a healthy and positive way, one part of helping them is to help them contain these experiences. We as parents and adults also need to feel that we are contained and not overwhelmed by the inevitable turbulent experiences of life. So we can visualize the idea of containment as an image of Russian dolls, where, for example, the mother contains the baby, her partner contains her, and the extended family and grandparents and social network all operate as containers. Of course, there are times when these containers break down and are not as effective as they need to be. It is at times like this, I believe, that we then resort to wanting to dispense with the problem rather than to understand it. It is when we don't feel contained, when our uncertainty threatens to overwhelm us, that I believe we look to instrumental cures or to the battleground or the business world for images and models that can enable us to feel in control of our children. And it's then, I believe, that terms such as managing, fixing and having strategies start to fly around. A common problem that parents have to deal with is that of the sleepless child. And I'd like to spend a little time focusing on this problem because it's common and also because I think it contains within it some of the issues I've been trying to raise. In dealing with the problem of sleeplessness, there are many advocates of what I would call the strategy or control approach. In one leaflet I came across, written by a group of professionals, there was a particular emphasis on what they called the bedtime battles. In their booklet... They described the problem of frequent waking during the night and they suggest to parents, ignore the child's request for you to come. Some children may be quite ingenious, thinking up ways to attract their parents' attention, so you must be very firm and pay no heed. What we mean by ignoring your child is not talking to him, not giving any drink or food, not patting or stroking or cuddling him, not tucking him in at all. And they go on. If a child cries in his bed, do, no, do not go back into the room. He may cry for a very long time, but if you go back in, say, after two hours, you will simply be teaching him that if he cries for long enough, you will eventually come in. Some children may cry for long enough that they make themselves sick. If this occurs, clean up the child, replace him in bed, say nothing, and avoid looking directly at him. In my view, this way of dealing with the problem of sleeplessness suggests that the parents have a monster at the very least, lurking in the next room, who must be kept under total control or avoided. I believe that this way of dealing with the problem of sleeplessness totally strips any notion of meaning from the sleep problem and tries to isolate it as a symptom in an old-fashioned mechanical way, away from the context in which it needs to be understood. A child psychiatrist colleague practicing in Victoria, Dr. Harry Edhouse, has spoken to me about this type of way of looking at sleeplessness, and he says that in his view, this way of looking at sleepless problems implies a notion of sleep resistance. This, he says, is patently ridiculous because it somehow implies that the baby or the child is at fault. The problem of sleeplessness, far from being seen within its context, is viewed instead as a nuisance factor, which has to be got rid of. I would suggest that within this context, the child isn't seen as a person. Dr. Edhouse has pointed out that the process of disposal of the problem, which is described in this leaflet, is a procedure for disengaging the infant or the young child from the parents against the wishes of the young child, 
when in fact it is the problem of engagement that has to be struggled with. I would tend to agree with this view of, of, of way of viewing sleeping problems. The first question I would ask is, why has the child's sleep problem occurred at this particular point in time? What may be happening for parents or in the family as a whole that may be causing a change in sleep patterns or creating the sleep problem? We must recognize that sleep itself is a transition. It is a major change for the child to go from wakefulness to sleep and has to be managed by both the child and the parents. Each individual has their own picture of sleep. Is sleep a place of safety or a place of danger? The way we as parents picture sleep has a bearing on our child's ability to fall asleep. We can also see a sleep problem as a problem of separation. Another worker in the field, Dillis Dawes, who has written a book called My Child Won't Sleep, makes the point that when parents ask professionals, should we leave our baby or young child to cry, they may really be saying, should I have been left to cry when I was a young child, bringing us back to the point I've made earlier on about recognizing the child part of ourselves and the child as a real person. The urgency of our child's cries may stir up memories of similar baby feelings in ourselves and make us feel incapable of acting as competent adult parents. It may be tempting to ask professionals to give specific advice about what to do and what strategies to use. And professionals, for their part, may feel the need to rescue parents from feeling indecisive and confused. Parents can listen to the advice that is given them, but ultimately they must find their own voice and own understanding about what is right for them. Our capacity to attribute meaning to our emotional experience and to the experiences of our children, whether in direct communication or play, has implications right across the generations. If we as children, if as children our emotional experiences are denied, invalidated or denigrated, if in short we are not treated as people, it will be difficult for us to do anything other than repeat this with our own children. I have described the importance of recognizing issues of attachment as well as of separation in dealing, for example, with a sleep problem. We can also view this within a more global context. Australia is a country made up of a large number of people who have come from other countries, and the process of migration, loss and change itself has a considerable impact on families. Thus, myths and culture about these experiences are often transmitted from one generation to another, and parents and children may feel that there is not enough opportunity to be helped to make sense of their experience. This may lead to families transmitting stress through several generations. I'd like to move on to explore how there are some parallels in the way in which loss and change is negotiated by children in more ordinary circumstances as they grow up. Donald Winnicott, the paediatrician and child analyst I mentioned before, talks about the need for children to have what he called a facilitating environment. That is, that it is crucial to allow children to have both a time and space in which to come to terms with and integrate a variety of different experiences. These experiences may arise out of their ordinary developmental milestones or through the particular events and life changes which all families face. Sometimes the facilitating environment remains more of an ideal rather than a reality. Often there's a problem of lack of space and time, particularly to help children integrate these experiences. Bruno Bettelheim in his book, The Good Enough Parent, makes the point that the one command most commonly given to small children today is, come on. The same pressure on time is found in the way many parents feel an urgent need to keep their children busy 
whether at the computer class or myriad social activities, they may feel anxious about helping their children get on in a competitive world. But at times, something seems to get lost. A psychologist colleague has referred to this process as rushing through childhood. Perhaps here we also lose the notion of the child as a person. The two areas that can often be most confrontational between parents and children are those of aggression and sexuality. It is at these times that the idea of the child as a non-person often comes to the fore. Sometimes it's a struggle to accept and understand the inner child as well as the outer child, not just the child who's capable of mastery and development but, and who's charming and engaging, but also the child who feels envious and aggressive, who may sometimes feel depressed, who has sexual thoughts and wishes. Often the experience of aggression or observation of sexuality or the preoccupation with bodily functions in young children, for instance, can put us all in touch with a more primitive and uncontained part of ourselves that we want to avoid. But of course, the extent to which we're able to understand and help children to negotiate these developmental milestones will depend on our own capacity to manage them. So there's a tendency then, perhaps, for things to get split into good and bad, or to see children perhaps as very perfect or dreadful. I've talked about the importance of the family culture and the way that ideas about family life can be communicated through generations. Some families may feel that aggression, for example, is very dangerous and become shocked and horrified at the aggression of an adolescent which seeks to challenge this view. The way in which we can encompass what I would call the total child and the total personality of the child from the earliest stage has major implications for later development and I believe particularly for the problems we face with later disengagement and aggressive behaviour in adolescence. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't set limits or that aggression should be ignored. Rather, I wonder whether we could ask the question, what does this aggression mean just at this moment? Why has my child hit out at me? Or why is my child a bully at the nursery school or at school or being bullied? We may not always find it easy to feel that the answers may lie to some extent in ourselves or in the interaction we have. I believe that it's very important for parents to be helped and supported, to be able to have the best and fullest relationship with their children. And it saddens me to think that so often we tend to pathologize the relationship issues that cry out for understanding. Or we, all, or we find ourselves using a catch-all diagnosis for many of these relationship issues. One such example is the current fashion for diagnosing attention deficit disorder in children right across Australia. There was a time some years ago when dyslexia was all the rage and before that hyperactivity. I would certainly agree that we are suffering from attention deficit disorder, but I, leave, I believe most of the time it's a disorder of the adult world and society rather than the specific disorder of the child. There are major deficits in the way in which we at times don't think about children, and our attention to them as people can be limited. What we require, I believe, is a different kind of attention, both to the needs of children and the needs of parents. We must recognize that the child-parent relationship is part of a complex emotional ecological structure. Children cannot exist in a vacuum. They need to be contained by parents. Parents, in their turn, need to feel that they are adequately supported by networks in structures and structures in society so that, so that they can parent effectively. Often these delicate networks break down or are not sufficiently supportive, 
At this point, the quality of parenting and family life inevitably suffers. I'd like to give you some practical examples of what I would see as ways in which we need to give children and parents a different kind of attention. First of all, we need to allow children and parents the right to exist in the world and to occupy a reasonable space. Some time ago, a London evening newspaper carried the following comments from a mother in their letter section under the title, Ordeal by Tube, Tube being the same word as the underground. She had responded to some previous correspondence about the danger of travelling with children on the London underground. And she wrote in her letter, Would they, she said, prefer us mothers to put the babies between our teeth and carry the bags in one hand and the buggy in the other when travelling on the underground? As parents with prams get so many condescending looks and tut-tuts on trains, buses and pavements, what a pity we can't float our kids in balloons above the crowds or become invisible. This letter, I think, indicates some of the feelings of desperation that many young mothers experience with small children and the sense they often have of being cut off from the rest of society. So we can ask the question, how child and parent friendly are our suburbs or our towns or our public transport? The next question I'd like to address is, who should be giving attention? What is parenting? Is it women's work alone, or is it the work of a partnership between men and women? This leads me to the question of discipline and setting boundaries and limits. There is much talk these days now of how out of control young people are, how resentful and angry adolescents seem to be, despite all the material goods that they receive, and the comforts that they have, often in contrast to their parents' early experience. It seems from the media articles as though these ungrateful, aggressive adolescent wretches have suddenly grown on trees when we least expected them to do so. Certainly they have nothing to do with nice families, and we cannot imagine how they suddenly appeared. But perhaps if we think about the delicate emotional ecological balance, it is not so difficult to understand. What these boys need is indeed the right sort of attention, and the right sort of attention does include the setting of limits and of boundaries and of proper containment, but it also includes the vital presence of men and fathers who need to be around with developing children from the very beginning rather than to have to come in as a heavy hand when all hell breaks loose at adolescence. The vital place of men in parenting leads me to the next point about where attention is required. It is certainly required in the field of the workplace, considering family issues. We spend almost more time at work than we do with our families. Over 50% of women are in the workforce, and yet the two worlds exist as though they are on different planets. Much lip service is paid to supporting family-friendly policies at work, but in reality there is a major problem of attention deficit here. All of us parents who work are aware of the tremendous compromises that are made, of the tensions, the rush to get to work, the often makeshift arrangements where children may be stuffed into any available slot. While I totally support the need for good childcare facilities, we need to be mindful of what sort of attention we want our children to have in childcare centres. If we want our children to have good attention, then we also need to attend to the requirements and the needs of the people who run the childcare centres and make sure that they are supported and also the best people available to do this most important of jobs. At the beginning of this paper, I talked about our consumer-driven and product-driven society, which relegates children and parents very much to the bottom of the pile. Perhaps the time has come to draw attention to this deficit. For example, it struck me as significant when I travelled on a long air journey with a young child 
which was an extremely uncomfortable experience with poor facilities for my baby and myself. I remember musing at the time about the advertisement used by this particular airline I was travelling on to attract its business class passengers. This advertising focused almost entirely on cosseting the passenger and making them feel cared for. So in this situation, the adults are travelling as babies and the babies have to struggle as best they can. Finally, we may want to focus a different kind of attention onto how the community sees parenting. Is parenting something that is the sole responsibility of parents? If so, then it becomes a very limiting and isolating experience and can only make parents feel more vulnerable. We might pose the question, should parenting be viewed as a community task? Should parenting really receive the attention of the whole community? And would it be helpful to broaden our view of parenting to include all adults, whether or not they have children themselves, to share an interest and responsibility for the next generation? We may at our peril exclude people who are not parents from having a voice or an opinion about how we bring up children. Not in the sense of ticking off parents or being critical, but rather in the sense of keeping all children in mind and of protecting children from society's apathy. On a more practical level, it means that we can all make a contribution, whether we are directly involved with children or not, as visitors to a family, as relatives in public areas such as shops, supermarkets and public transport. Our greater awareness of children's needs and parents' needs all help in a small way to recognize them as people. At the same time, our greater recognition and attention to the child without can contribute to a deepening awareness and attention to the child within ourselves and offer us all continuing opportunities for play and growth.